You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. You know, the Matrix says, pick an identity and stick with it. Because I want to sell you some beer and shampoo, and I need you to stick with what you are, so I'll know how to market it to you. Drag is the opposite. Drag says, identity is a joke. Hey friend, welcome back to For the Love of History. As always, I'm TK. I'm so happy you're here. I'm really excited about this episode's topic. I feel like I say that for every episode, but I'm so super serious for this one. <laughs> this week, we're talking about drag history. Woo! <laughs> Yay! I'm so excited about it. So the quote that I just said to you in the intro is a quote from the world's drag mother, RuPaul Charles. We're going to talk about Ru later, so don't you worry. So before we get started, I kind of want to tell you the reason why I chose this topic to do this week. And if you will indulge me, I'm going to get a little bit personal. So I live in Japan and I've lived here for about four years. And in the first couple months of moving here, you know, I didn't speak the language. (laughs) Smart move, right? TK? Genius, genius over here. (laughs) But I didn't speak the language. I had never been to Japan before. I'd studied Japanese history in university, but that was it. So I had a lot of culture shock and I was sad. I was really sad when I first moved here. And like any emotionally healthy person, I turned to Netflix to numb the pain and the sadness. And that's when I discovered RuPaul's Drag Race. And it helped me during a time when I was feeling really insecure about my life choices and about where I was in my life. And we're going to talk about this a little bit later on in the podcast um, about, you know, RuPaul's Drag Race's message but there's such a message of like love and self-acceptance along with really entertaining content but through watching RuPaul's Drag Race I was really able to feel you know better about myself and my choices and I laughed and it was just great you know it was it was a way that I could escape from what was going on in my life and to learn a little bit more about self-acceptance and self-love because that's important, you know. All right, I'm done. I'm done with the mushy stuff. I guess I just want to tell you that, you know, drag is holds a special place in my little, my little heart. <laughs> but that's enough of that. You're here to laugh. So let's start laughing and let's just jump right in. So grab your snack, settle into your drive, whatever it is that you're doing, get comfy and let's get started. Since the early 2000s, drag has taken off in such a big way in pop culture. But this is not a new concept. Men and women have been dressing in the traditionally opposite sex fashion for pretty much forever, especially men dressing in female clothing. It can be found in numerous cultures from the ancient Greeks in 800 BC to 500 BC, where women were not considered good enough to perform, thus men had to play the women's roles. And in Japanese culture with kabuki theater, this is a highly stylized type of theater, and women were once able to perform in kabuki, but in the 16th century, it was just decided that women 
were not allowed to perform anymore. So they were banned from performing and thus men had to take up the female roles. And then again in the 1500s, you know, in European Shakespearean plays, women were just not allowed to participate because they were considered sacred acts. They were really closely connected to the church. I'm sensing a pattern here as well, like why y'all gotta be hating on the ladies? We're good actresses, don't be rude, but I digress. In many cultures and throughout time, drag has happened. People have been dressing in the traditionally other genders clothes for forever. But drag really got its roots and its name in the 1800s when, once again, men were playing female characters. And it's believed that the name drag came out of this time period when the men's dresses, their petticoats, would drag across the floor. And the word would be used like, oh, the men are getting into their drags. Or for party invitations, they would say, come in your drags. So this is where the word came from and how it was used. So early drag has its roots in Victorian era in the UK. And if you've listened to my previous podcast, you know that the Victorian era is super notorious for looking real proper on the outside but being kind of like closet freaks on the inside, (laughs) which makes me just love the Victorian era. There was just crazy things going on during that time. But anyways, men were totally allowed to wear clothing, women's clothing in the theater because they had to play the female characters. But so help them if the police caught them in the streets. It wasn't necessarily illegal to wear women's clothing, but homosexual activity was illegal in the UK during this time. But despite that, there was a blossoming drag performance culture that started up and it moved from just being used in the theater to being its own type of entertainment. There were men that made careers out of female impersonation and there were also some women who made careers out of male impersonation, but they unfortunately weren't as popular. However, things took a turn for the worst in 1885 when the Labotchery Amendment was passed in Britain. Basically, it made gross indecency illegal, and this was purposefully vague. It didn't have really strict definitions, so that the police could use their own discretion to decide what was gross indecency. Now, if you were convicted of gross indecency, that carried a sentence of two years hard hard labor in prison or worse. But despite this, there were lots of performers that became really, really famous in the UK during this time. And side note, Because homosexuality was so very illegal during this time, a secret language popped up called Polari, and it was used by not only gay men, but also circus performers, gypsy, and many other marginalized groups in the UK. And it's so fascinating. I guarantee that you will not be able to understand what they're saying. Uh, I left a link in the show notes to two things. Number one is a YouTube video showing you an example of Polari, two men speaking in Polari. And then uh, there's a translation page also that I have linked to it. So please enjoy that. I highly recommend you checking that out. So drag in the UK became really popular and there were a lot of very famous performers. 
But I want to take you across the pond to the good old U.S. of A., where drag became this whole other beastie and where modern drag would eventually come from. So it could be argued that the U.S. is the home of modern drag. I am not qualified to argue that point. However, it is an arguable point. UK drag and US drag were blossoming at the same time, however, in in a little bit different ways. There was something in the entertainment industry that was happening in the 1880s to the 1930s called vaudeville. And drag performances, both drag queens and drag kings, were really, really popular during this time, as well as something called the ballroom scene, the drag ballroom scene. But they really found their niche, or niche, whichever you say, you pick one, niche, niche, either way is fine with me, but they really found their niche during the 1920s prohibition time, when alcohol was illegal in the United States. This happened from 1920 to 1933. And this was called the pansy craze, where drag queens and kings, gay men and women, could perform, socialize, and just be themselves in these speakeasies or kind of secret bars. During the 1920s, there were also things called balls, where the black gay community would come together and host these balls and pageant-like contests. It was a safe space for them to be themselves because gay people could not be served alcohol and same-sex couples were not allowed to dance together. It was actually super illegal. So they used these balls as a way to express themselves and, you know, just have a place for only them. And remember the ball scene because we will come back to this whole idea of balls, drag balls. So let's move on over to the 1950s and 60s. After World War II, laws around homosexuality became very strict. There was a whole social purity and social decency movement going on. And there were laws like men must have on at least three items of clothing and no female clothing at all. You couldn't be seen wearing makeup or anything that the police thought was too feminine. And it was the same for women as well. Women couldn't wear very quote unquote air quotes, masculine clothing. And there was still no serving gay people alcohol and no same-sex dancing. So the drag scene took a little bit of a nosedive during this time period. But it was still happening, just not at the same scale that it was. So for the sake of time, we're gonna fast forward a little bit through this time period. But if you are interested, I will leave some literature in the show notes for you to read if you are interested in this time period of drag. So let's go on over to the 1970s. Yes, queen, slay, you better work. Shade, tea, sis, yes, God. I am sure at least one of those words are in your vocabulary. I know you, millennials. I know you. I'm one of you. I know you use these words. And these words came from the 1970s drag scene. 
In fact, so much of pop culture now comes from the 1970s drag scene. Do you contour your face? Drag queens did that. Do you bake your face? Drag queens did that. Voguing, drag queens did that. And it all came from the Harlem drag ball scene. So we previously talked about a little bit about the Victorian era ball scene and the 1920s ball scene. In the 1970s, drag balls did include dancing, but they were very early forms of competition and self-expression that would lead to the huge drag shows and conventions and TV shows that we know today. No different from the eras before them, gay men and women in the 1970s needed a place to be themselves and express themselves. In the 1960s, queer culture and drag had split into different racial groups, predominantly the black and Latin communities and the white community. The black and Latin LGBTQ community was located in Harlem. And in my very personal opinion, I believe that Harlem is the birthplace of modern drag. So now we're going to talk about the emergence of two powerful movements in drag history. Excuse me, herstory, drag herstory. <laughs> so we're going to talk about the Harlem ball scene and the first drag houses. Of course, there had been balls in Harlem before the 1970s. However, the first ball put on by a house was done by Lottie and Crystal LaBeja. Lottie approached Crystal LaBeja and convinced her, really, to form a house and hold a ball put on by dun, da, da, dun, the House of Labeja. So this became the first house ball, and it was called the first annual House of Labeja ball at Up the Downstairs Case. And it was held in a club on West 115th and 5th Avenue in Harlem. And it was basically a huge competition with different fashion categories that both male impersonators, female impersonators, and transgender people could compete in. So like I said, Crystal LaBeja became the first house mother. And at the beginning, houses were groups that would help performers participating in the balls, like make their costumes, help with their hair, help them with practice, just organize the balls in general. But then they quickly morphed into families and homes for kids who were disowned by their families. They essentially became kind of orphanages, really. The House of Labeja was the first, but very quickly other houses began springing up. In 1972, the House of Dior and Wong were created, and in 1975, the House of Cory and the House of Dupree also were started. And in 1982, the first all-Latin house was the house of extravaganza, with an X. <laughs> By the 90s, there were over 70 houses, both in and out of Harlem. I do not have the words to properly describe to you how energetic and full of life these balls were. So I'm gonna recommend some documentaries and some YouTube videos so that you can see first 
hand. Just the pure level of extraness and extravagancy and eleganza that was going on at these balls. So check out those recommendations in the show notes, please. I beg of you, go watch them. They're so interesting. So by the time the 80s and the 90s rolled around, there were so many houses and basically every month there was a ball being put on by one of these houses. There are even still houses today such as the House of Sharon Needles, the House of Davenport, the House of Edwards, the House of O'Hara, Bob the Drag Queen, the House of Aja, the House of Pearl, and the House of Exclamation Point. There's so many more but those are some of the most popular ones that came from a show called RuPaul's Drag Race. If you have ever heard the word drag, I am sure that you have heard the name RuPaul Charles. And if you haven't, girl, where have you been? Just kidding, we don't judge here, we don't shame here. You're learning, you've come here to learn. So I'm gonna tell you who RuPaul Charles is. In my opinion, RuPaul Charles is one of the founding mothers of modern drag. Rue has been in the drag scene for years, from being the first drag queen spokesperson for a cosmetic company, <coughs> MAC Cosmetics Supermodel of the World campaign, <laughs> to releasing several hit songs. And I'm sorry, I'm gonna go off on a little bit of a tangent here. If you have not listened to the song, Supermodel, Work It, you need to go listen to this song right now, I have left a link to the YouTube video in the show notes. I promise you, if you feel down or like you need a little bit of a pick-me-up or if you're doing your makeup or you're getting ready to go out for a night on the town or you've got a big presentation or meeting and you need to feel like a freaking superstar, then you need to listen to this song. I promise you, you will feel like a, a supermodel. I promise you, I guarantee, it's the TK guarantee, or your money back. But anyways, through the 90s, Rue put out music, he was politically active, he had a talk show called The RuPaul Show that played, I, I think, 100 episodes with his co-host, Michelle, Michelle, Michelle Visage, that name is hard to say, and I also love Michelle, like she is one of the world's greatest LGBTQ allies and I will fight you about it. Just kidding, I won't fight you about it. I absolutely hate fighting. <laughs> I just love her. I love Michelle, Michelle Visage, if I can say her freaking name. But anyways, moving on. It wasn't until the early 2000s, in 2009 specifically, that the first season of RuPaul's Drag Race aired on Logo TV and the drag world would never be the same. In the past 200 something years, with the exception of a few drag queens and even some drag kings, making a living through drag was near impossible. But the drag race world exploded and changed all of that. Drag Race has become a household name and many of the racers, which is what they're called, the drag racers, the performers who are on RuPaul's Drag Race, are also household names. 
reaching millions of followers all over Instagram and social media. Through this one show, and now a couple shows, there's Drag Race Thailand and Drag Race UK, and I'm pretty sure they're going to make a Drag Race Canada, which, whoop, whoop, more Drag Race. But through this show, a whole new economy has blossomed. I've said blossom like 4,000 times in this episode. I'm sorry. I'm going to buy a thesaurus. There are now drag conventions and whole industries like nail extension companies, wig companies, breastplate companies, which I love one of the breastplate companies' names. It's called Boobs for Queens. Love it. Killing it. (laughs) And also garment companies and several other types of industries have been created because of the explosion of drag. And what I personally love about Drag Race is that, yes, it is a reality TV show. And yes, there is drama, but there's also a huge resounding message of love and self-acceptance. RuPaul and the fabulous Drag Racers have made huge social impacts and created so much visibility for the LGBTQ community. Drag Race has also expanded the definition of what drag is. You have drag queens that are in the fish category, which means they're very elegant and polished and classy, like the drag queen Coco Montrese, Shangela, and the trans drag queen Peppermint. They're beautiful. I'm going to put pictures of, of them on the Instagram. And then you have club kids, like Acid Betty and Sasha Velour. Then you have the comedy queens like Trixie Mattel, which is my favorite. I love you. I love you so much, Trixie. And Bob the Drag Queen. And the definition of drag continues to be expanded in so many different forms of drag. And you know we can't forget about the drag kings like Landon Sider and Adam All and Miles Long. And I'm sure drag kings and drag queens will continue to expand the definition of drag. Now I'm going to leave you with one of my favorite RuPaul quotes. We're all born naked and the rest is drag. But wait, TK, you forgot about the happy end note, the interesting little tidbit. No, I didn't. I didn't forget. I would never do that to you. We didn't have a lot of time to cover individual drag queens or kings, but I want to highlight my absolute 100% favorite all-time drag queen, William Dorsey Swan. William Swan was born into slavery. He was enslaved in Hancock, Maryland, but was freed by the Union soldiers after the Emancipation Proclamation went into effect. And William Swan wasted no time. During the 1880s and 1890s in Washington, D.C., Swan organized so many different balls. And he proclaimed himself as the queen of drag. The majority of the men that would attend Swan's balls were men who had been formerly enslaved. And they would get together and they would just dance it out in their beautiful satin and silk ball gowns. But they were very secretive. Like you had to know somebody who knew somebody who knew somebody else to get into one of these. But not only was William Swan the queen of drag, he was also a huge activist and was arrested in police raids numerous times and was the first 
documented case of a person being arrested for female impersonation in the United States on April 12, 1888. In addition to this, Swan was the first American on record who pursued legal and political action to defend the LGBTQ community's right to gather. And if you don't think that that is a beautiful story, then I don't know what to tell you about your frozen heart, friend. Just kidding. <laughs> Even after Swan died, two of his brothers had also been active in the drag balls and they carried on his legacy. So that was a long one, you guys. I really appreciate all of your support and sticking with this till the end. I can't tell you enough how happy I am when I see that people actually download and listen to this podcast. So just thank you. That's all I have to say It's just thank you so much. So as always, uh, you know, if you feel so inclined, subscribe, share, and head on over to For the Love of History's Instagram to see all the pictures that I talked about in this episode. By the way, I left a PDF in the show notes of a timeline, and I'm going to start uploading the timelines I create for the episode. So if you guys are interested in that, trying to keep time straight, then uh, just go ahead and check that out. So stay safe. Have a great weekend or weekday or, you know, whenever you're listening to this. Have a great one of those. And don't forget to tune in next week for next next week's episode about the fork, a.k.a. the devil's tool. All right, you guys, that's it. I'll see you next time. Bye. Why is there a metronome right now? Okay. <laughs>